Welcome to episode 96 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by TLS, the liquor store of Jackson Hole, growing with our community since 1985. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash TLS to learn a whole lot more. Hello from Jackson Hole, I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide. Each week I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about daily life. I feel we can all learn so much from each other, and I intend to search out people and their stories, which will teach us a little about life outside of our everyday circle. My guest today is Ken Thomasma, an author, lifelong educator, father, husband, grandfather, great-grandfather, and community leader. From the time Ken was first introduced to Lewis and Clark, he took an interest in the Native American history and culture, and at some point in his life, Ken realized he just had to move to Jackson Hole to do more research. Ken and his wife luckily landed jobs teaching at the famous Kelly School, which educated the young children in the valley from the remote corners of the community. At the young age of 90, Ken has so much insight, spunk, and life stories to share with anyone younger than himself. I love speaking with folks like Ken, who helped me learn about history in our country, our community, and help me be humble with all of the amenities of modern life. Well, Ken, delightful to have you here at the Jackson Hole Connection. Um, as you were saying earlier, you've lived more than half of your life here in Jackson Hole, and you've been around this area for a long time and very influential in many things. So let's start off with what brought you here to Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Well, it happened to be that I was washing my car on a Saturday morning. That starts everything, doesn't it? Washing the car on Saturday morning. Well, it, it did, <laughs> plus going to a class in college that got me interested in, uh, in writing and in camp work, summer camp work. So what happened to me is I, uh, I was washing my car, and a f- friend of mine that I worked with in a camp a few years before came by and said he was going to work in a camp in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana. And he described the camp, horseback riding, hiking, fishing, trips to Yellowstone and Glacier. And I had never been west of the Mississippi, and I said, oh, man, tell me when there's an opening. I'd like to work in that camp. I got a call the next morning from the camp director. They were having a meeting outside of Detroit, 140 miles from where I lived in Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. And the director offered me a job as a counselor. And I talked to my wife, and we decided, let's do it. It's only 1,900 miles away. So when we're coming down to the camp in the Bitterroot Valley, if you know the valley, Highway 93, there were signs on the side of the road, picture of two explorers. Lewis and Clark, one of them pointing the way. And I said to my wife, what were they doing here? They never should have come into this valley. So when it got to the summer camp, I said the kids that come here better know Lewis and Clark were here and camped right here where they're camping. They're living in history. We can't let them go home without knowing that. So I went into the town of Hamilton and bought three volumes of the Lewis and Clark journals, which would, encha- which would change my entire life forever. I read those journals so I could pass on information to the kids. I kind of had to do it fast because they were coming in a few days. And when I got home, I read them a little more carefully. And I came upon an entry that Captain Lewis made. He had gone desperate to find Indian people with horses. They had come to the mountains and they were stuck on the little Beaverhead River, running out of water, going to face defeat. So he takes five men goes or four men goes out and walks over a hundred miles in five days finds Shoshone people talks them into coming back to the river where Captain Clark is with all those canoes and the men when they got together Sacagawea was in the water helping the men pull a canoe Hmm. she climbed out of the river and started running she saw her best friend coming toward her They grabbed each other and jumped up and down, laughing and crying, and Sacagawea said, This is my friend. We were both captured when we were 11 years old. I was one gambling by by the man that owns me, and my friend escaped, and I thought she was dead. But she made it all the way home. 
I read that and I said, wait a minute, 60 million buffalo Lewis and Clark's dead? 100,000 grizzly bears? All the rivers she would have to cross? How she would evade recapture? The violent weather the explorers had a lot of times stopped them in their tracks. This 11-year-old with a pack on her back did the thousand miles alone. I'm going to write a book about her. Well, it so happened that uh, we were living in Michigan and I was working for a school district and I was uh, I had a very important job was to help the superintendent of schools pass mill levies. Every time we had a vote, have to vote every three years, he had me make a sound movie of the school district. And I would make such a wonderful emotional movie with kindergartners and handicapped children and sports and the whole thing. And it had to be just 15 minutes long. And he would show it to at least 600 groups. He would have teams go out with copies of the movie and movie projectors and screens. And the city of Grand Rapids was not doing well with their schools. Before this superintendent came, it was so bad, the funding, they had to go on half days. Ooh. So this superintendent said, it's up to you and me to, to change this. Mm-hmm. So we, I, made, I made the movie, had it in my basement. If you know about movie making, I had strips of film taped up on the wall in my recreation room. I had my two reels, the A and B in the soundtrack, and I learned how to make a sound movie from my friend at the local television station. He gave me instruction and showed me how to do it. So it was a bootstrap. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. I got the AB and the soundtrack all in the box, drove to Detroit, Michigan to the processing place, got there about 8.30. 10.30, I had six copies of the movie in my car, and I'm barreling for Grand Rapids, Michigan, 140 miles. I hand the copies to the superintendent. He said, you came just in time. I'm speaking to a women's luncheon group. It'll be the first time this film is shown. And after he showed it, he said, wow. He said the devil himself would have to be, it would be the one that would vote no after seeing this film. It would have to be the devil himself. Hmm. It's so well done. So long comes election day. Big campaign, and boy, he knew how to campaign. He had every elementary school district as a headquarters to get out the vote. We go down to the Pantlin Hotel, the biggest hotel in Grand Rapids. He has rented the ballroom. He has a band. He's playing the music, and people are dancing. And he has a big tote board, a long chalkboard up on a stage, 128 precincts. And he writes down the count and does a running count. It got to precinct 128. That one had to vote yes or we would lose. We won the election. 47,000 votes, and we won by 1,400. Whoa. (laughs) And the school district was back in business. Nice. So he had me do some more. Three years later, I had to do another movie. And I had Gerald Ford in that movie. Gerald Ford was my representative in Grand Rapids District 5. Hmm. And we were friends. I refereed basketball with his brother. And Jerry came to our church and talked to our youth group. And so he came to Grand Rapids when he was uh, running for uh, vice president with Nixon. I mean, he was running for president after Nixon left. And he was running against Carter. So I did some filming of Jerry when he was there to use in one of our mill levy votes. And when you had Jerry in the film saying... The public schools made me what I was able to do in my life. Fight for the United States and the Navy, run for Congress and be elected and serve the people because of the public schools. Everybody vote for this mill levy. That one passed by the biggest margin in the history of the city. (laughs) So anyway, that's the way it went. But in 77, I said to the superintendent, I've been working in a summer camp since 1959 in the Bitterroot Valley. And I'm going to go out there and work in that summer camp, and we plan on moving to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm going to try to get a teaching job. I have found an 11-year-old girl that Lewis and Clark reported on, and I need to get out there and write that book. I can't do it here. You're working me 16 hours a day. So he said, you're crazy. I'm paying you $25,000. 
Excuse me. He says you're going to make thirteen thousand or fourteen thousand out there. I said, Phil, I got to write that book. So we bailed out, hauling everything out in a U-Haul. We had built our house, took three summers, on the end of East Grove on Butte. So we had the house all built, and we had uh, borrowed money from everybody we knew to pay for it. And I needed a job badly to pay him back. So happens that I went to every school board meeting all summer waiting for an opening. No opening. I applied for a bus driver's job to get some income and Blue Cross Blue Shield in case. Two weeks before school started, one of the most popular teachers in the middle school, Stan Klassen, was promoted to the high school. His job was open. It was eighth grade English. I taught elementary. There were 27 candidates for that job. I wrote in there how I had studied as a uh, media specialist, how to improve reading with all of the reading labs, SRA, uh, EMS, all the special reading programs. And I know you want somebody to do some remedial work in reading in the eighth grade, and I'm the one that can do it. So on and on I went with that application. Of the 27, I landed the job. Congratulations. And then the superintendent of schools, brand new from Flint, Michigan, says to the principals, we need to pass a mill levy to build a new high school. You know anybody who can make a movie? They said, we know somebody. (laughs) He just came here from Michigan. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, the superintendent here knew the superintendent in Flint. And the Flint superintendent uh, gave the information that he knew that I was here. So, anyway, they asked me to – we couldn't do a movie. We didn't have the money, so I did a slide program. And to make it real dramatic, I had my neighbor, Carly Johnson, who is a legend in this valley, a homesteader. He owns two blocks of, of uh, the highway going out of town where Dairy Queen is and, and uh, the gift shops and all. And Carly uh, owns a, owned the uh, trailer park next to Flat Creek. And he had an airplane, in fact, two airplanes. One of them was a vintage 1947 Piper Cub. He says, I'll take you up, and we'll do an aerial of every school. And you will have aerial pictures, and people will understand the impact of this school district from Alta to Moran to Kelly to Wilson to Jackson. I said, wow. Up we went. (laughs) That was some ride. I was sitting there, just the two of us, back to back, and I had my slide camera. Well, anyway, long story short, three-week campaign, I bought a full-page ad in the Jackson Hole News and one in the guide, there were two papers. Mm-hmm. I lined both ads with pictures of school children. So the border of every advertisement, full page, was kids' faces. And in the center, I said, this is the issue. And it'll cost you a half a gallon of ice cream a month to help these children. That's how much your taxes will go up. Well, JoLynn Kuntz, county clerk, said... You're going to have a 1,000 no votes. People are not going to raise their taxes. And how many people were in the county at that time? This is 1970-what? Yeah, there were 2,400 or so, 3,000 maybe. All right, and it's 1970 She said you're going to have a 1,000 no votes, and some people aren't going to vote. So I said, uh, JoLynn, we're going to do it. So we had a three-week campaign, and I bought those advertisements. And then at 4 a.m. in the morning— My son and I were sleeping in our living room on the floor. I had to teach that day, but I wanted to be up at 4 a.m. I had cardboard signs made. They were about three by three, and it had red letters with two words, vote today. Because I know from experience, a large turnout, a successful vote. The no's are going to be there no matter what. 4 a.m., we woke up to six inches of snow on May 28. (laughs) We took our extension ladder out and went to every telephone pole of all of the roads coming into town and tacked up one of those signs. Well, the the sun came out and the snow was starting to melt, so it looked looked like we might have a chance. But my son Dan said, hey, Dad, the snow's going to do us in. I said, I don't know. We'll see. I met the county courthouse that night, and the vote is going back and forth. And I think there are only six, seven precincts. When it was all over, 
The levy passed by 44 votes. Hmm. 22 the other way, and it would have failed. It was unbelievable. And the superintendent schools said, you better lay low. Yeah, half of the people love you, but the other half, you raise their taxes, and they're madder than blankety-blank. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened after that is uh, the uh, little Kelly school was uh, going to be enlarged. I was only two years in the middle school when the superintendent called me and said, how about you and your wife taking over the little Kelly school? We're going to have to move the airport people out there. We're going to have to move the moose kids out there. And the parents aren't going to like it. Nobody wants their kids pulled out of a school and stuck out in another school. We went out there and took a look, and I said to my wife, wow, our own school, teachers' meetings on the way to school in our car. (laughs) knowing all the kids and the families every year. Look at the view, the National Forest, the Elk Refuge, the National Park. It is spectacular. Let's do it. She said, well, I'm not taking those kindergarten, first and second graders. You're going to have to take them. So at the Kelly School, it's K through what? It was K-6 at the time. K through 6 at the time. And two rooms, Uh one stacked on the other. Not even as big as most homes. Very poor facilities. No playground, just a swing set and a piece of blacktop, and the rest was sagebrush and weeds. Mm -hmm. And I took a look at it, and I said, uh, I'm going to adopt this school. We're going to do the job. The wife of the superintendent of Grand Teton National Park campaigned against the move of the kids. But the superintendent went on ahead and said, we have two master's degree teachers. Your children are going to get, get individual attention every single year. And he, he did a good job of selling. So all that summer, for six weeks, I worked out there digging up sagebrush and rock. I wanted to make a play field where they could play softball or soccer. I planned on building an ice skating rink. So I had to dig it all up. And uh, then my uh, friend said to me, uh, you know what? I think if you went to... Uh, you went to Clark's Ready Mix, they might have some topsoil for you. So I went in to see Lou Clark, and he helped me with the high school bond issue, by the way. Uh-huh. I said, hey, Lou, I know you're building Motel 6, and you're digging up black dirt, topsoil. How about we get it at Kelly School? He said, can you get a belly dump up on that playground? I said, your belly dump truck can come up on the west side and go around the school on the east and deposit that dirt, because I had all the sagebrush and rock gone. He said, get out there tomorrow morning. They'll be there about 8.30. Huge piles of topsoil. (laughs) And this is not a small playground. It's pretty good size. Mm -hmm. So anyway, now I'm faced with spreading it. One of the parents says, hey, I like what you're doing. I have a backhoe. I'll be there. With the backhoe, he spread it all out. Trouble is, with those huge tires, he packed it. Mm. Grooves and rough. So I spent, I don't know how many weeks, raking that topsoil. I, I had visions of getting some uh, some uh, sod to put it in, have grass, but I had no money and, and I didn't have time. Right up until Labor Day, I was still raking. And finally, it was all topsoil. Those kids came out the first morning, day after Labor Day, and saw that playground and took off. I can still see them running out onto the play field, and they had a soccer ball kicking it around. They were laughing, and it was really something. So they played on it all fall and all spring. By by the end of uh, school, that was like concrete. So I go in to uh, U-Rental and get a uh, that uh, tool to grind up the dirt. Oh, no. What do you call that auger? Let's see. What Tiller? Is. Yeah, that's it. Two handles, but I couldn't mm-hmm. push it. I had to pull it backwards while those augers dug into that hard. So I thought my shoulders were going to... Hmm. lose my arms Mm -hmm. four and a half days running that machine finally had it churned up then i raked it then i go to u rental and i rent a roller fill it with water i roll it then i go and rent a seed spreader i spread the seed and then after you do that you have to roll it again and then i started the sprinkler i started the sprinkler i imagine it was probably the middle of july maybe a little earlier first week nothing happened I thought, the seed is bad. It's almost a month. 
And then after, it was almost exactly a month I came out. When you walk up on the playground, you come up a little rise. And I was looking out eye level at the topsoil. And I saw a green tint. Grass. (laughs) It's working. By the time the kids came, I had to mow the lawn Labor Day. The next day, they came out and were rolling in that grass. One of the problems we had was what the superintendent of what superintendent's wife said is they you got that campground there and you got people outside of their tents urinating. There are those kids. So what I did is I built a fence. There was a buck rail fence and I drove over to Idaho with my truck and brought these slabs. You know how they peel them off the logs mm-hmm. to make a square log? Well, they have slabs. And they sold me a couple of truckloads of those slabs. And you will still see the wall there today. So it's an enclosed stadium. When we play softball, you hit one over the wall, it's a home run. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I also had to redesign both classrooms. Neither classroom was good for what we wanted to do. The classroom was in the basement, the one I had kindergarten, first and second grade. No carpeting, just linoleum. Mm-hmm. It was like a basement floor. So we went back to Michigan, and my wife's uncle was opening a new store like a Kmart. And the old store, he had torn out a lot of plywood. Just the right size I needed (laughs) to build study carrels along a wall in both of our classrooms. I loaded our pickup till I thought the springs were going to break with that plywood. Came back and built study carrels along each wall, the the, uh, west wall of each classroom. Our neighbor was getting new carpeting, and I got his old carpeting to carpet the floor. Kelly's school became our baby. And it was it was an unbelievable experience. The uh, the ice rink is another thing. The first one I built was with a, a garden hose and my felt pack boots. Thirty two hours packing the snow with my boots and saturating it with a garden hose. I built thirty ice rinks like that. I go out after supper and work till about ten o'clock at night. And after thirty hours, the kids were skating. I'd go to browse and buy and get all their used ice skates. When I did any traveling, I'd stop at every thrift shop and buy ice skates. Then we got cross-country skis the same way. So we, re- we really had a family school. It was like a mother and father school. Well, it so happened that my first book came out. I read every chapter to the kids at Kelly's school to get their reaction, the Nyanuki story. And they clapped after every chapter. And I told my wife, this is going to be a winner. So anyway, I, I wrote that book, and, and when, I, uh, when I sent it in, it was adopted right away. And we were uh, in school on one afternoon. It was March 4, 1983, and a UPS truck pulls up. And I'm in the basement classroom, and there's a window in the hallway. I can look up out of the basement, out that window at the driveway. I see the UPS truck, and he comes out with a small box. He walks into my classroom and my little red-headed first grader, Gwendolyn, screams, Nyanuki is here, as loud as she could. Well, the stairway to my wife's room was open. They heard it. That was the end of school on that Friday at 10 after 2. We all went up and there were six copies of that book that we passed around. So she made me the author. And then uh, as soon as the book came out... Steve at Valley Bookstore, I took some into him, and he said, this is exactly what we need. There's not any books about Indian children available anywhere and how they actually lived and their connection with history, and you have done it. So he started selling them right away, as did Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. And the book took off all over the country. It's now in seven foreign countries in their languages. There have been... Five attempts to make a movie, and for a lot of uh, crazy reasons, the people trying to make it couldn't pull it off. And I still believe there's going to be an award-winning film made someday of the little girl who loved freedom and put her life on the line. So the first book that you wrote was Nyanuki. Nyanuki. And Nyanuki was... Sacagawea's best friend. Sacagawea's childhood friend. And they were in captivity, and Nayanuki escaped. Yeah. Now, the reason I wrote Sacagawea wasn't because of what she did. Mm -hmm. She did something real important, but it was because of the bicentennial. 
the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial. They finished the expedition in 1806. So you got 20, 2006, you got the Bicentennial. And I wanted the book out well before that. So it came out in 1997. And that book got me involved with Senator Enzi and the Sacagawea Golden Dollar Coin. The Mint decided to make a, a, a new dollar coin to replace the dollar bill, which they had to keep trashing after 18 months it was worn out. Mm-hmm. Drugs and, and uh, all kinds of bad stuff on it. And they were going to replace it with the coin. When I heard about it, I sent a copy of my Sacagawea book to the director of the Mint. And I said, this is the girl who needs to be on that coin. She was 11 years old when she was captured. When she was 15 years old, she was won by a no-good trapper. And then he signed on with Lewis and Clark. And she carried her baby 5,000 miles, helping them find food, helping them with directions, being a sign that the men didn't come to fight so they were never attacked. And when they met her people, her brother was the chief of the tribe. And she told her brother, these are good people. Trade them the horses they need. Man, Captain Lewis says he could not believe he had the chief sister standing next to him. You want to imagine what the odds were of that happening? Of all the girls that could have been captured? Mm-hmm. And Charbonneau, this guy, got her? And Lewis and Clark came and they sign on? That's unbelievable. So anyway, uh, the guy that uh, owned her was going to... Lewis and Clark said was going to claim her when they came because those girls were purchased as soon as they were born. The Shoshone and a lot of the other tribes, as soon as a girl is born, she has to belong to a family. And the family has to be somebody who can care for her and use her to help them. She didn't belong to the family she was born in? No, she would not stay with the family she would be born in. She would be sold for a couple horses, which she was. And Captain Clark wrote, the man said he didn't want her. Another man has her, and she has his child. I don't want her. Now, my question is, what would have happened if he said, I'm taking her? Lewis would probably try to pay. He'd do something to try to keep her, because she was already a huge help. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be the end of the help that she was either. All along the way, she showed. Captain Clark ended up almost to the Missouri River, She showed him how to find it. He was in the mountains looking for it. He was going to go over some high mountains. And and she told him, Captain Clark, let's go around this mountain. And you will find a river that will take you back to the village you want to go to. He credits her with saving him unbelievable time. And he wrote these very words in the journal. I'm indebted to the young woman for being a pilot for me through the land. The captain is indebted to this girl. See, those were the words of praise. Just kept coming, even to the end of the expedition. You know what they said about Charbonneau? No. A man of little merit. You know what his skill was? Hmm. Cooking. No kidding. He was French-Canadian, a French cook. Lewis said he made delicious dishes. And, of course, you know, they killed buffalo, elk, deer, beaver. They loved beaver tail. They loved elk tongue. They love buffalo tongue. They love buffalo hump where the fat was. She showed them all that. How to, all the berries to eat. Captain Lewis said she identified 12 different edible plants that he didn't know existed. Hmm. She was a walking encyclopedia of edible plants. And never a day in school. All taught by her mother. Because the women were the food gatherers in the tribes. And the men were the hunters and the warriors. Mm-hmm. That's how the work was divided up. So anyway, the book comes out. And uh, now it's in some languages, and it's very popular in uh, Japan. People in Japan love my books. And I have a friend who comes here, had some property here at one time. And uh, the Japanese people believe that their people migrated from Japan over the, uh, over the land up above in the Northwest Territory, over those islands. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Indian people came from. Japanese origin. Now, there's different takes on that, because some of the Indian people came from the south, not the north. So there's probably a lot of mixtures. But the horse is the thing that changed uh, the people's lives, and I wrote a book about the coming of the horse to North American plains. Happened at about 1700. Before that, Indian people were pulling their loads on travelways, carried by dogs. 
They couldn't carry much at all. They were living what you would call subsistence, just barely making it. Then one day they saw a man riding on an animal. They thought he was riding on an elk, but they said, wait a minute, that animal's tame, like a dog. When they caught their first one, they called it elk dog. Huh. That's the Blackfeet name for horse in their language, elk dog. I mean, I have found out so unbelievable things that were just brought out by meeting these Indian people. I'll be right back with Ken after this quick message from the show's sponsor. TLS of JH has been serving the community of Jackson Hole since 1985. Our team at the liquor store happily tastes new items in the market, so we only have on our shelves the best products available to our little town. We love receiving suggestions about new products and how we can make your shopping visit the best part of your day. TLS is so confident in the products we sell and the service provided, we have a no-hassle return policy. And coming soon, the relaunch of the Jackson Hole Wine Club. Visit thejacksonholeconnection.com slash TLS to learn more. So share with us, how many books have you written about the Indian people? I've written 11 books. 11 of them. Are they all children's books? 10 of them are historic children uh-huh. fiction. And the one is nonfiction by Sacagawea, which is obviously adult mainly, but children love it. And adults like to read the children's books because there's so much history and Indian lore in it. And uh, one of my best friends who has helped me a lot is Laney Tom up at the Colder Bay Indian Museum. Laney and I went on a few trips to study some of the Indian sites around this western area. We went to the Medicine Wheel. I don't know if you know about the Medicine Wheel. No. Where's that? Yeah. You know where Lovell, Wyoming is? Yes. Outside of Lovell, you go a switchback road right up a mountain above Timberline. And when you get up there, it's all sagebrush. And lo and behold, there's a wheel up there made by gigantic boulders Hmm. rolled into place for the rim. And there are 28 spokes made out of rocks representing the 28 moons of the year. That's what Laney believes. Basically a month. Now, Laney says to me, if you're going to write a book about the people who went up there, we have to go see it. Sounds fair. So, Laney and I made the trip. Had to stop in Lovell at that famous hotel for some roast beef. Laney loves roast beef and gravy. (laughs) What is... Who doesn't love roast beef and gravy? Um... Now, who is Laney? Oh, Laney. Uh-huh. Laney is a Shoshone, and he is uh, the curator, Indian curator, in the Calder Bay Indian Museum. He comes up every summer. I met Laney when I was teaching at Kelly School. Mm-hmm. I knew he they had Indian people up there, and I wanted the kids to meet some Indian people and learn to respect them as good human beings. So Laney and Clyde Hall, another Shoshone, came and did a program for our Kelly School kids, visited our school. And that's how I come to know Laney. And he's on the internet now. He does a lot of blogging. Tells me what he has for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Takes pictures of the places he goes. Tells about the visitors. He's a real character. But he's adopted the modern way of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's on the internet. How many Indian people are on the internet? <laughs> More than we think, I, I'm sure. I, I would think more than we think, yeah. yeah. Uh, fascinating, your your passion for all that was all spurred by that one story um, that, that you learned about, and kudos to you. And I, I am curious that when you came out here in the late 70s in Jackson, you said that the county had about 3,400 people when you were trying to get that mill Somewhere levy. in there, I I don't know exactly how many. So what was life like for you and your wife? And did you guys have kids at that time? Well, our son was graduating from college. Okay. And was able to be, teach with us at Kelly School. Okay. So we lived a very simple life. And uh, all of the restaurants which were there when we came, they're all gone. Most of the family restaurants. Mm-hmm. The shootout was on. Uh, the theaters were going. But when the fourth, when the September came and Labor Day. There's the book a guy wrote. I don't know if you know about it. Jackson Hole Coffee Hour, Labor Day to Memorial Day. 
<laughs> Everybody has the whole fall, summer, and spring off. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called something like that. And uh, what what is pretty amazing is that I took my book home to my mother who lives in Grand Rapids. And she was living in a home and my father had died very young working in a factory where he was poisoned by paint fumes. And my mother was living alone and I came home and thought I'd show her the book I wrote and give her a special copy. She looked at it and she said, why did you write about Indians? Why? I said, I wrote this book about her because of what she did. Since she was with, why shouldn't I have? She said, I never wanted to tell you this, but you are part Indian. Hmm. Interesting. My mother, she said, is Indian outside of Chattanooga, the Teleco Plains. And she showed me a picture and she looks full blood. And see, my dad is Dutch. And his, his genes obviously were strong because I don't look Indian. But I said, Mom, I can be proud of that because I know how Indian people had to suffer what we did to them. Right up until recent times, we were attacking and killing them. And see, my latest book is uh, 1871. And uh, we, when we attacked the Ute people under a white flag and killed a lot of Ute people, but the Ute warriors pinned them down. The soldiers were pinned down. They sent for help up to Rollins, Wyoming, or Fort Steele. And the black soldiers came in in force and finished off the Ute people and chased them back to their village. And then the governor of Wyoming said, get those blankety-blank trash natives out of here. Mm. So they were dumped in Utah outside of Vernal, 80 acres per family, hardly any water, hard to grow anything. It was miserable. Finally, it got so bad, they were treated so badly, they said, let's leave. Let's go up to South Dakota and we can live with the Lakota people and find happiness. 350 Utes, men, women, children, 50 head of cattle, a thousand horses, wagons, loaded up and in May headed out of Utah. They went over to Idaho or to Colorado where they were attacked by the, at the Wood River and spent some spiritual time there and then went north into Wyoming. And it took them all summer to cross Wyoming, maybe 15 miles a day. They came to Gillette, and the Gillette people were accusing them of killing cattle, doing terrible things to people, which were all lies, by the way. So the Gillette people said to the governor of Wyoming, you get those blankety-blank people out of here, or we're going out there with our rifles. He notifies Washington. Washington sends out the army, and the army escorts them up into South Dakota. 1906, they get there and live a miserable life. They're not wanted. There are no jobs. They don't have any land. They're just dumped out. They're fed grain and leftover food from white people to keep them alive. Two winters there, and they say, we're going home. Another summer, accompanied by the army, back across Wyoming to the Ute Valley, to the valley outside of, of uh, Vernal, Utah, where they are today. So I said, I'm going to put a little girl in this story. It's going to happen to her and her family. And she's going to have a little mule. She's going to get that mule as a gift for saving the chief's little boy's life from a stampeding team of horses. And he's going to give her this mule as a gift. And they're going to become inseparable and have unbelievable adventures as they cross Wyoming. So that's my latest one. And has that book published? It's out. It's been out a couple of years, and it's going great guns. And what is the title of that book, Ken? The, the title is Title of the Ute Indian Girl Crossing Wild Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And I gave her a name. And can you believe I can't think of that name? <laughs> Well, why don't you share with uh, the listeners today, <laughs> what is your age? I will be 90 in a month and a half. Your birthday is in August. September 2nd. September 2nd. Okay. A little more than a month and a half. A little bit more than a month and a half. Okay. Yeah. My son's birthday is right around yeah. September 7th. Um, 
And you're still, do you still write books? Uh, my, my granddaughter wants me to write a book. Okay. She said there's a story that people need to hear about the boarding schools. Oh, How the, the... Indian children were taken from the boarding school, or taken from the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Four Arapaho kids put on a train and hauled to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. to the Carlisle Indian School where they would die and be buried. She said, why don't you write a book about it? You could have the children die, but why not have one escape and say, I'm not going to stay here and die. I want to go back to my mother and my people and then have him plan his getaway. And I've done, I've done a lot of study of uh, people who have made getaways. During the Second World War, seven guys escaped from Siberia, and it took them months to get down to the plains of India, and only four of them made it over the Himalayas. Oof. So I would have this boy do what those men did, secretly hide some food under his pillow or wherever that's not perishable, and get ready to go. Save up some extra clothes. Find out a way to kind of disguise himself. And then one night, like those seven men did, run for it. Mm-hmm. Those men climbed over the uh, concentration fence in the dead of winter in a blizzard and made their escape. I would have this boy go in a thunderstorm, pouring rain, middle of the night, and run for his life and hide out all the next day and then travel another night and another night. And then, because when he was brought in, he he memorized a lot of the landscape and he, he is somehow able to find the railroad track. That's his map to go home without missing a turn. He will follow it clear to North Platte, Nebraska. He, he will go up from there toward Casper and then on to the Wind River Reservation. And there will be a joyous reunion. The boy came home. And now he's there to take care of his mother because his father's gone. Mm-hmm. I think I can make a pretty good story. I think you should do it. You do? Yeah. yeah. You all should right. totally do it. You convince me. My <laughs> granddaughter's after me all the time. <laughs> as, as she should be. As she should be. He can have a lot of adventures on the way and have a lot of help. I, I lived next to a railroad track when I was a kid. I did too. Did you? Mm-hmm. I loved it. And I would go down there. My mother didn't want me to, but I'd sneak down there. And here would be those uh, those railroad cars mm-hmm. and hobos in them. I actually met hobos who jumped trains and rode from one town to the next. Okay. On those cattle cars mm-hmm. where the doors are open, you know, and they slide closed. Yeah. Ken, I'm interested to know where does your passion for education come from? And learning. When I when I was born, we were so poor. My father had suffered polio. His whole left side was paralyzed. Two weeks before I was born, he couldn't get out of school. He was in the hospital. He was in bed for five years. My mother was given the job at the factory where he worked. Calvinator that builds stoves and ovens. And she begged to work nights. 11 to 7, so she could be home with me in the morning. My mother was ended up being a Rosie the Riveter during World War II. When my dad could finally walk with a bad limp, he only had one hand that was usable. His other hand, his fingers were all frozen up, closed. No muscle in his right arm or right leg. He walked on the left, or the left leg. No muscle in the left arm or left leg. And he walked on that muscle, uh, that bone, I mean, with no muscle. His ankle built up a huge ball of bone that was sort of a special foot for him. It had to be chiseled away eventually, and the foot straightened out. But he was able to get a job in a uh, greenhouse where they really bib lettuce and tomatoes. And I was 10 years old when he said, uh, I've got this job and you have to go with me. Your mother's home taking care of your little brother. So I went out to the greenhouse, and my dad could put a bucket on his wrist and pick tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And see, they could sell them before the summer crop was there. And that's the way greenhouses made money. They had to warm tomatoes ripe in June. 
So anyway, the uh, guy at the greenhouse said, hey, Kenny, you want to work? I said, sure. He said, I'll pay you 10 cents an hour. I said, really? Hmm. Great. So he gave me a bucket and I was picking tomatoes. And I worked so hard, he came up and he said to me one day, I can't believe how many tomatoes you pick the short time you're here. You're getting a raise to 12 and a half cents an hour, 25 cents every two hours. Well, back then you could go to a movie for a dime and get popcorn for a nickel. Gasoline was 24.9 a gallon. Some places 19.9. So anyway, I, uh, I, I learned how to work and then I went to school. I went to the, most, the fanciest school ever built in, in Michigan. It was three blocks long and three stories high. It had a public library in it for the downtown, all the people in the downtown Grand Rapids area. It had the largest basketball court in town with all the major tournaments played there. I walked into a kindergarten room with a goldfish tank in it, lion's head with water coming out, a bay window full of flowers. It was had a fireplace. It had carpeting. I came out of dire poverty. I took a bath in a metal tub every Saturday night. We had nothing. My mother was working for pennies. I came to this school, and the first week, our teacher took us to that huge library, a gigantic room for elementary, one for secondary, and one for college, full of books. We went up to the desk of the librarian, and she handed up a card, and she said, you can have one of these cards and take three books home at a time and bring them back and get some more. But your mother has to fill out this piece of paper. I had that paper back the next day. <laughs> I, we didn't have a book in our house. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with books. And I had the most fabulous teachers that district could ever hire. They were like second mothers to me. I still know all of their names. And I said to myself, oh, man, someday I'm going to write a book. I tried more than once. And I had some good ideas. I was selected as a community ambassador as a teacher to go to Turkey and live with the Turkish family for the whole summer and come back and do 150 lectures. When was that? 1954. You went to Turkey in 1954. 1954. And what was Turkey like in 1954? <laughs> 1954. Uh, we, I, lived with, uh, I lived in Istanbul with a mother and father who were both doctors, trained in Paris, France, and had a little boy. There were 12 of us Americans, and we went with 12 Turkish people, young people on a bus, and toured the peninsula of Turkey. They found out that I played junior college basketball, and the uh, people in Istanbul have what are called basketball clubs. They form a group and have a basketball team and they compete with each other. And this one club found out about me and said, we want you to play for us. And I said, well, I'm gonna be on this tour with these students. They said, that's okay. We'll fly you from Ankara to Istanbul and you can play in the game and the next day you can fly back to Ankara and meet your bus. I actually played basketball in Istanbul for a Turkish basketball team. I love it. <laughs> so anyway, that that whole turkey thing, I could go on and on. It was an unbelievable experience. Just unbelievable. But it taught me how to do presentations, which helped me do all of these programs for schools to pass mill levies. I became a travelogue presenter. I would come back to Grand Rapids and show pictures of our mountain climbing and backpacking. And I'd have background music. And I'd ended up with some real great music, thundering drums and trumpets and everything, flags flying, patriotic, and people would pay me to show those programs. So that Turkish experience had me do, and I, I was, believe it or not, I was kind of timid before I had to do those programs. I never said much, but I had to do the Turkish programs, and that gave me the ability to present information to people. And that's why I was able to help school districts and, and do what I do. And, of course, I do it now, you know, with a, with a word on paper. I love it. Yeah. So, Ken, you have lived an absolutely phenomenal life. And I so appreciate you taking time to share 
your history and what you are putting into book form, you know, your writings um, and your thoughts. If people wanted to connect with you, is there an easy way for them to send you an email? There's a very easy way. I'm in the phone book. That's one good way. Okay. My email is grandviewpublishing at gmail.com. Okay. So if they did Grandview Publishing, all small letters, mm-hmm. at gmail.com, they would get me. And they can call me on the phone or whatever. And uh, anybody that calls me, I give them books at a huge discount. I personalize them with a autograph. I write children's names in books. I do whatever they want. That's spectacular. That's my thing. <laughs> well, you're an inspiration to us all and certainly inspire me to be a better person and more giving and to continue learning and searching out information. And I certainly see how my little boys who love, love books will be uh, right along your side at some point. And I will be dropping some off for you. We actually have your books. Oh, you do? We do. (laughs) Yeah. So I look forward to getting into those books with them and, um, They'll have a blast hearing them. All right. You're easy to talk to. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ken. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time, and congrats. And don't forget to write that book that your granddaughter is asking you to write. All right. All right. Take care. You bet. To learn more about Ken and all those books he's published and his fascinating life, please visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 96. And I'm always looking for ratings and reviews. So please share this and stop and give us a review. Five stars, and we love those stars. Many thanks to everybody who helps me publish and produce the Jackson Hole Connection each week. My wife, Laura, the boys, Lewis and William, all of you wonderful, consistent listeners, and my editor and marketing guy, Michael Mooring. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you here next week for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.